Acts chapter 4. As you're turning, you know this as well as I do. We live in a country, we live in a culture where we have a definite sense of equality. We have the, this, this sense of things need to be done fair. Things need to, we, we insist on our rights. And people, listen, we, we've got a lot of rights. I was looking up the other day just for the fun of it. You know, what countries have the same rights or some of the same rights we have? I couldn't find some of them. There are rights that we have that you and I take for granted. Things that we, you know, our founding fathers, they, they were smart fellows. They knew there's going to be issues down the road if we don't put down in writing that these people have these rights. And as these rights get taken away, or as we let them slide away, we're going to have issues. And we're seeing that today. You and I, and, and let, me, let me back up. There, there was uh, one family, their name just slipped my mind. I'm sorry. Stephen, who did you go visit in Germany? Knackles, thank you. Uh, they were telling me how in Germany, one of the issues they ran into is if they have a car there on their mission compound, they can't use it because people all around the area, they want things to be fair. And they shouldn't be able to use something that we can't use. Well, their fairness is more of a socialist, socialism fairness. Our fairness is we want things done right. We want justice. And I've brought up examples of that before. You know, I like to see right done. Listen, okay, here, here's the point I'm getting at. We're a very fortunate people. We are extremely fortunate. And unfortunately, we're losing some of these rights. We're losing things. They're sliding away from us quicker than we may want to admit. Quickly, we're becoming like the rest of the world. And that's the direction that we're heading. Now, is this a bellyache message? No. Here's the point I'm trying to get at. We're losing rights, but this is going to be especially true where it comes to our rights as Christians. Do you realize that we are an abnormality in this world? Pretty much anywhere else that you go around the world, Christians have to suffer for the cause of Christ. Christians are being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And as they suffer, as they go through persecution, there's no recourse for them. You and I, we, can, we, have some, we still have rights in this country. But in most areas around the world, those rights don't exist. For you to take a stand as a follower of Christ and to be persecuted is to take your life in your own hands. And in most of the world, it's dangerous. And here's something that's interesting is usually that persecution is not just against religion. The persecution is specifically targeted most of the time against followers of Jesus Christ. It's not just religion that people don't like. It's Jesus. It's been this way since the beginning of the church. Nothing is changed. Nothing is new. This is all something that, that has been here from day one and too often, here's what we do as Christians. 
We see persecution come because we might open our mouth once in a while and if somebody badmouths us, we're shocked. And we're appalled that someone would dare to persecute people. This is normal. This is the normal for Christianity and Jesus expected it to be normal. What I want us to look at today, we're going to be back in Acts chapter 4, the suffering that we're going to see happen today with Peter and with John and with the lame man, that is exactly what's been going on all throughout time for the last 2,000 years. It has been solid persecution. Now this is a good challenge for us today. You and I need to understand that this is the normal, and here's the point, it's the normal when you and I are following Christ. Here's why it's not normal in our lives. Too often we keep our mouth shut and we act like cowards. We stay back in the background and we don't want to take this book and give the answers that people need because it might cause us a little bit of discomfort. We have been called. We have been commanded to go and make disciples. And yet, we cower away from our responsibilities. I want us to see in the text today some principles. We started looking at some of those last time and I'll catch you up on your notes. But I want us to see principles for how you and I should respond to persecution just like Peter and John and this lame man did. I want us to see some of these principles and I want us to see how it should be affecting us. How it should affect our outward lives as we try to make disciples. I forgot one thing. Does anyone need a handout that did not have one? Tom, if you could pass those out. Anyone? Okay, one up here. Okay. If you need a handout, just put your hand up and we'll, we'll get one of these to you so you can follow along. Okay. Let's catch you up on your notes. Uh, last week we looked at the arrest of the apostles. The arrest of the apostles. Now he had shown them, Peter had, had shown the Jewish leaders some of the benefits of being a Christian, of being a follower of Christ, he emphasized that, that Jesus, who has been resurrected, He is alive, He is still working, He is the source of their blessing. Peter was emphasizing these truths, and that was way too much for the Jewish leaders. They couldn't handle those statements being made. So, first thing we look at under this one was the altercation with the Jews. Uh, that was verses 1 and 3. They came down. They roughed them up. They threatened them. They threw them in jail. The Jewish leaders were rough with Peter and John, and I'm, I'm assuming with that lame man. And the first principle we saw was at this point, and that's on the back of your handouts, we need to be busy about God's business and invite persecution. We should be inviting it into our lives. We should be outwardly giving the Gospel and just, you know, here I am, come get me. That should be our mentality. I'll have these up on the on overhead in just a moment so you can catch those up too. But We need to be busy about God's business and give people a reason, an excuse to persecute us because we're standing for Christ. Second thing we saw, the Jews were annoyed. And that was verse 2. Jesus used the word grieved. That word means greatly annoyed. Peter was messing with their authority. 
Peter was opposing their doctrine. This would have gotten their pride worked up. And, and really what he's doing is he's threatening their power because they're the religious leaders. He's threatening, his, uh, especially with Annas, and the booze of Annas, he was threatening his wallet. Annas could be losing money if people leave following Judaism and start following Jesus Christ. They were annoyed with this. And some were attracted. That's point C. Some were attracted, howbeit many of them, not most, not all, but there was a bunch of them who believed. They became followers of Jesus. That led us to our second principle that's on the back of your handout. How we respond in our persecution can be an influence on others around us. How we respond in our persecution can be an influence on others around us. And that same thing goes for your pressures you go through. It goes for your, you know, just difficulties in general. When I have a hard time come up in my life, am I responding in such a way that says, you know what, my God is big. My God is able. And no matter what comes of this, my God is good. And I'm going to follow Him and I'm going to trust Him. Or does it come back to us? Does it all come back to I am not happy about what I'm going through? My focus needs to be on Jesus Christ. And it needs to be primarily on Him because how I respond can push away people or it can attract people. And we have to ask ourselves these questions often. Second point we saw is the attack on the apostles. The attack on the apostles. So at this point, in verses 5-7, through 7, they're going to they're bring them out and they are going to continue the attack they had started the previous afternoon. So, and and it's, not a, it's not a discussion. This was an attack. So first thing under this was the actors, uh, the ones who were involved. We saw the Sanhedrin. We saw the family of Annas that controlled the high priesthood and the corruption that was happening there. And, and third principle we looked at was as persecution comes, and it's going to come if you're a follower of Christ. As persecution comes, look for opportunities that God opens up through it. Because He will. He opens up opportunities. And He's doing it here through this persecution. Second thing on that point was the arraignment. It just seems like these Jewish leaders love to harass innocent people. These are the ones who went after Jesus, who did no wrong. And now they're coming after James and John. And go ahead and put that picture up. This was the, they put them in the midst of these 71 men. And those men were elevated above them, around them. And it was just a peppering time where they would go after whoever was set in the middle of that group. And it was an, it was an ugly time. It was not a pleasant time. And that brought us to our fourth principle. If you could put those, that should be a list of four principles up here now that you can catch those up. But... The fourth principle was that persecution of followers of Jesus, they're usually looking for information. They're not usually looking to find out why you believe something. They're looking for an excuse to show their hatred for Jesus. Take heart in that. It's not necessarily you. If you're being obnoxious and you're asking people not to like you, then it's you. If you're just giving the message of Jesus, they're attacking Jesus. And they're hating Jesus. Let that be what people hate. Don't let it be that we're being obnoxious and making ourselves uh, you know, difficult to get along with. So that's where we've been up to this point. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at our new text today. Father, I thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for loving us. I thank you that you are good. I thank you, Lord, that you're in control. 
Lord, regardless of the difficulties that come in our lives, regardless of what we're going to be facing as a country, as a church, Lord, you're good and you're all-powerful and you know what we need. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to follow these examples that we're seeing today. Lord, as we take this brief time and look into these verses, Lord, help us to focus on your word. Help us to block out the distractions that are around us. Lord, help us to be able to, to have your Holy Spirit move in us and draw us close to yourself. I ask for your help as I preach. Please keep me accurate. Keep me from being a distraction to the message that you desire to be preached. Thank you again for this time. And Lord, I pray that in some way you would be glorified by our efforts here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point number three. Point number three, the affirmation. The affirmation of Jesus. When people today attempt to stand for Jesus Christ, you may say a word, you may try to give the gospel. When that happens and they receive uh, kickback, when they receive ridicule, most of my experience, and I'm not saying this is the way it always is, but my experience has been when people get kicked back for their faith in Jesus Christ, the tendency that I've seen is for people to soften their stance. For people to pull back away from being a witness for Jesus so they don't stand out like a religious fanatic. They don't want to look bad. And so they pull back in their stand. And you know, kind of the idea would be, you know, well, if, if people don't like Jesus, why push them? If people don't want to hear the Gospel, why should I be putting my neck on the line and trying to, to push things and give them the Gospel? Why should I do this? And we can get clever. We can get really, we can get really clever with our rationale for why we don't have to be a witness for why I don't have to take a stand and take this abuse that comes from other people, we can come up with all kinds of excuses. The bottom line is this. You cannot get away from the assumption in Scripture that true believers will be witnesses, true believers will be followers of Jesus. It's going to happen. That is the normal. So as you and I pull away from that and we cower away from our responsibilities, we are abnormal from what the Scripture shows. Jesus expected us to receive persecution, did He not? If they hated Me, they're going to hate you. Why? Because He expected us to be followers of Him. If you want to serve Me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Me. That's the expectation. It is assumed that we are, if, you, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you're going to do what He says. You're going to follow Him. You're going to promote His kingdom and not your kingdom. So the assumption is there will be persecution. See, cowards in the Lord's army, they're not going to suffer much. You're going to be just fine. Everybody's going to think you're wonderful because you're a coward and you're not standing up for Jesus Christ. If that language sounds harsh, it's intended to. We need to be soldiers for Jesus Christ. We need to stand for Him. And as you and I 
follow Jesus. And here, as we follow His disciples, example, we will be bold. We will not cower away. That needs to be where we're heading. That needs to be our goal. First thing we see here is Peter asserts truth. Peter asserts truth. Verse number 8. Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, there's the key, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So the key here is he was filled with the Holy Ghost. And that takes you to your fifth principle. Your fifth principle. To be successful in persecution, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the tense of this word is that this is a constant filling. This is not the kind of thing where we have this mindset of, well, one day when I decide to take a stand for Christ, I I hope at that point I'll have the Holy Spirit controlling me. That's not how it works. This was a constant thing that was going on in Peter's life. Peter was consistently controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, that's when success comes. So what does success look like? We want to be successful. We want to have a successful Christian walk. Here's part of it. When the Holy Spirit is filling people, when He is controlling you, here's what will happen. You will speak. You will open your mouth. Can I just just throw this out to you, okay? If you are not opening your mouth for the cause of Jesus Christ, you're not being controlled by His Spirit. Those two go hand in hand. You can't separate this. There will be a controlled speech that strives to further the cause of Christ. So how do we get this Ephesians 5.18 filling. You get that by following that we looked at earlier, that Colossians 3.16 principle, allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. It's us taking in the Word of God. It's us not just reading it, but being passionate about the Word of God. Desiring it in our lives. It's us surrendering our ways to His Word. It's us letting Him dictate what we are going to do with our lives. There's going to be a continual repentance in our lives. A continual turning from sin and turning to our Lord that will continually be there. And it's not us getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit getting more of us. Getting more control of what you and I do. And again, the tense with these words, then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost, is he was already filled. He was walking with the Lord. He was responding, because he was walking with the Lord, he responded right to the persecution. Do you want to respond right? then you need to be walking with the Lord now before the persecution comes. You need to be walking with Him. Now, notice back into verse 8, who He's talking to. He was filled with the Holy Ghost, and He said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel. These are the same people that crucified Jesus. Same people. 
And Peter here is standing up to these people knowing just a couple of months before they killed Jesus for taking a stand and he's standing for this one that they killed. What he's doing is taking his life into his hands. This is a dangerous place. Can I suggest again this, this being filled with the Spirit produces a boldness? Being filled with, G, with God's Spirit produces a bravery in us to give the Gospel to people that need it. So what Peter's about to do here is he's going to bless those who are cursing him. These people are after him. They're wanting him. And what Peter's about to do is give them the Gospel. He's witnessing to these people. And here, here's, here's the big thing that I see with this. He is giving them more grace. These people have just got finished killing Jesus. They're persecuting Peter and John, and Peter is just giving them the Gospel again. He's not writing them off. Look in verse 9. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole... I'm going to stop mid-sentence there. Here's kind of what he's saying. Are you people serious? Are you serious? You're going to put us on trial for this miracle that you've just seen? You're going to put us on trial for doing this good deed? This is unreal. That's what he's saying in verse number 9. This is kind of like one of those Isaiah 5.20 moments where he's saying you know, they're, they're calling good evil and evil good. He cannot, it's hard to fathom that they're willing to go after him for this. And their word choices are interesting here. He says, if we this day be examined. That word examined is the same word we see over in Acts 16 when Paul goes to, he says, you're more noble than those in Thessalonica, you Bereans, because you search the Scriptures. That's the word examined here. So when they searched the Scriptures, they were diving into the Scriptures. They were getting every last detail and they were putting, they were putting Paul to the test and making sure that he, what he said was right. Can, can you imagine if these Jews had searched the Scriptures the way they were searching these men? We'd had a different outcome. Very possible. But this word there is interesting. They were just diving in and looking for anything they could to hang these guys with. And then he says, if we're going to be examined of this, by what means this guy is made whole? Obviously, they're looking for, talking about the guy was healed, the lame man was healed. But this word that's used for made whole is usually used in the Scriptures to refer to salvation. Now, I'm not saying that that was intentional, and that's, that was his, his purpose in this, but I'll say this, it fits. It fits. They are upset because this man has been healed, a miracle has been done, and he has become a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's what this examination is all about. Verse number 10, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. I'm going to tell you what's just happened here. They came to Peter and they said, back up in verse 7, Tell us by what power, by what name have you done this? 
And I'm going, to, I'm going to use an analogy to tell you what they just did with Peter. It's like having a pitcher in a baseball game, and that pitcher's throwing 90-mile-an-hour fastballs, and you just can't swing at it. You don't have the ability to take a good swing at that ball. But all of a sudden, that pitcher says, you know, here's a nice easy one. And he lobs the ball over the plate. And it's slow enough, like a softball, for even somebody like me to hit it. And what Peter does is he swings at the pitch. And he's going to hit a home run. You could use the analogy of you know, the door was opened and they just went through. Now here's my opinion, okay? I think we get a lot of these in our lives. We get a lot of slow pitches. And people, we don't swing. All we got to do is swing at the ball. When we have opportunities to take a stand for Jesus Christ and give it to them and give them the Gospel, and we just stand there and kind of cower and hold our back, we're wrong. Swing at the ball. When you get an easy pitch, and there's a lot of these, when the door's open, walk on through it. Take the opportunities. We need to be serious-minded about our Lord enough to take those pitches. Don't be scared of them. Don't be serving self so we don't, we don't try to advance the Gospel. Now he says here, be it known unto you all. Make, let me make this real clear is what he's saying. You've got to know this. This isn't a tough one. And be it known unto every one of you. All of you need to know this. All the people of Israel. You want to know what name it was? Bet it the name of Jesus. Jesus did it. Who healed this guy? Jesus did it. And then he tells them in all this example exactly who he is. That at the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah that you rejected, the Messiah that you didn't want, the one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that you mocked. You remember, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. The Jesus that you rejected, the Jesus that you mocked, whom you crucified, the one that you killed, you killed him. Whom God raised from the dead. You killed him, and God went against you, and God resurrected him. This is the Jesus who healed this man. He alone is responsible for this man's healing. And here's what he's doing he's giving all of the credit and all of the praise. To Jesus, which is exactly where it belongs. Jesus is the one who's done all of the good. So we get it backwards. When people talk today, you know, I'm saying people, what they want to do is say, you know, everything bad, we're going to credit God for it. Everything good, we credit man for it. And it should be the other way around. God is a good God. And we need to be thanking Him and praising Him. Let's give Him the credit where it's due. That's what we need to do. Now, persecution, often as it comes, and here it's happening, they're persecuting Peter and John, and this persecution has just opened up the opportunity for these sinners to hear the Gospel again. How could Peter and John have ever have stepped into that? I'm looking backwards. At that picture, remember where the Sanhedrin was, how could they have ever got in there? They couldn't. But the persecution gave them the ability to take the Gospel to this group of people who wouldn't have been able to hear it. As you and I see persecution comes, it gives sinners another chance to hear the Gospel. And if you and I will be bold enough, we can remind them 
of the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to commit ourselves to, and, and ask God, help us to walk with you so we'll be bold enough to give the Gospel. And I appreciate Peter here. Peter's message, it doesn't matter where he's at. He can be in private, he can be in public, he can be in the church, he can be getting tried here in a courtroom. His message is the same. People are guilty. Jesus defeated death. Jesus rose from the dead. He paid the price for our sins and He's able to change your life. That's Peter's message. Nothing's changed today. That is exactly the message that we need to be giving people today. And one of the greatest proofs of this message being genuine, with them, you had a lame man standing there right beside them. God changes lives. People listen. He should be changing our lives. That's one of the greatest proofs that we can offer the unsaved world. We can offer them the ability to see Him taking a life that was living for self and living for the things of this world, and now all of a sudden, you know what? I'm wanting to put off the old man. I'm wanting to put on the new man. I'm wanting to follow Jesus Christ. As you and I allow God to change us, it's a verification of the power of the Gospel. As we follow self and we live for the flesh, we're not being an example of anything good. We need to ask God, help us to see where we're failing and let's follow Him. Second point, Peter applies the Old Testament. Verse 11, This is the stone which is set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. So he's answered their question, by what name have you done it? And he said it's by the name, it's by the authority, it's by the power of Jesus. The one that they killed and God resurrected. So now, Peter is going to apply the Old Testament to substantiate the answer that he just gave them. So this verse that we just read is a quote from Psalm 118.22 and it says this, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. He doesn't quote the next verse, verse 23, but it really fits well. Here's what it says, This is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. When God allowed Jesus to be set aside, to be killed, and to raise Him from the dead. This was marvelous. This was something that was totally, only God could do it, and it should impress us. It should give us a desire to want to follow Him more. Now Jesus quoted these same verses back in Matthew 21, 42, and He told the chief priests and the Pharisees, that he quoted this verse, and those Pharisees, they got it. They knew he's talking about us. He's telling us that we're the ones who are setting aside this chief cornerstone. We're the ones that are opposing God. They knew that he was talking about them. And if you remember what they wanted to do then, they wanted to kill him. They tried to kill him at that point. This verse is quoted numerous times in our New Testament. And it's an important verse, and here's why. This verse shows us really two things. It shows us what the Jewish leaders did, and it shows us what God did. Here's what the Jewish, Jewish leaders did in this one. They set at naught. That means they to despise something, to reject something, to push it aside because it has no value. It's of no account. You ever been in a... We like thrift stores. 
And there are times you can go through a thrift store or a yard sale, whatever, and you can pick something up and you think it's one thing, and oh, this is just a cheap piece of plastic. This is just garbage. And you just kind of toss it back. I don't need this. Or you go through the woods, you find something else, just, and you toss it. That's what they did with Jesus. This is worthless. This is of no account. And they tossed Jesus aside. That's the wording that we have here. He was set at naught. And Peter adds a word here that's not in, it's not in where he was quoting of you builders. You's not in Psalms. Peter is applying this specifically to them. He's saying, okay, Sanhedrin, you are the ones who did this. You're the builders. You're the ones that tossed him aside because Jesus wasn't good enough to be a part of your building. You didn't want him. And because they didn't want him, they decided to get rid of him, to toss him aside permanently by killing him. That's one of the things that made Jesus unacceptable to him was that he couldn't prevent his own crucifixion, or so they thought. But Jesus was the most important stone in that building. Jesus was the one that they needed. And so then we see what God did, which has become the head of the corner. God made Jesus the most important part of that building, the most glorified piece of the church. That's what Jesus became. If you remember, and, and He did that through the resurrection. That's what makes Jesus so glorious. That cornerstone, when they would build a building, everything went off that one stone. Every angle was set off of that stone. It was the foundation. It was the key part of that building. And in the same way, Jesus is the key to the church. Jesus is the foundation of the church. That is exactly what Peter is proclaiming about Jesus. He is the key for our salvation. Jesus is the key that you and I need to be looking towards. And Peter makes it so clear here that these Jewish leaders are opposed to God. God's the one who established this. And they need to reconcile. That's the key. And the only way they can reconcile is through Jesus Christ. He's the priority. And that takes us in to verse 12. Point C, the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you want to be a part of God's building, if you want to be a part of God's redemptive plan, if you want to have His salvation, if you want this, you can't do it apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only way. There is salvation in no one else. There is peace with God through no one else. There is a relationship with God through no one else. There's no substitute. There's no alternative. People, you can't just tack Jesus onto your life and say, I've got something that's okay for me now. It is all about Jesus. It's Jesus alone. And that's what we need today. 
The word he uses here, neither is there salvation. This salvation is, is a general term. It's preservation from danger. It's something that keeps anything safe. The only way that you can be safe from judgment is through the one that you rejected. That's what he's telling these Jews. That is the only way that you can be safe from judgment. We know from John 3.18 that if you have not trusted Christ alone for salvation, you're currently under judgment. It's not that you'll get judged one day. You're under judgment at this point in time. And the only way to escape that is through Jesus Christ, the one that they had rejected. He says, Neither is there salvation in any other name in any other, for there is none other name. He's looking back to verse 10, that name, the crucified, risen Jesus. This is the only way to be saved, to get out of judgment. Without him, you go to hell. Those are your options. You trust Christ. You have a relationship with Him. You don't trust Christ alone. You go to hell. Those are the two options. Everyone fits into one of these two. Notice he says here as well, there's none other name given under heaven, under heaven given among men. Jesus was given. This is God's gift to us. God gave His only begotten Son. God freely gave Him. The offer is there. He offered Jesus for us. See, the Jews, they had no hope. They had no hope. They were a godless nation. They weren't seeking the true God. And God gave them the gift of His Son. Does that not describe us? We were hating God. There was nothing good in us that God should desire. And He gave Jesus Christ. He gave the gift of His Son. And when God gives something that is that special, and when God gives something that is that, that costly, He deserves to be the only way. He deserves to be exclusive. And He is exclusive. And that brings us principle number six. Uh, when, we are, when we're being persecuted for our faith, I'll say for proclaiming our faith, don't forget the answer is in the preaching of the resurrected Jesus. They don't need our rationale for why they shouldn't fuss at us. They need to hear about the resurrected Jesus. It may be foolishness to them, which it is. It's foolishness to the world. But to us, it's the wisdom of God. It is the truth that you and I need to proclaim. Now, while this gift, he says here, it's for all men. It is no other name under heaven given among men. It's for everyone. It sounds, even though it's for everybody, it sounds really restrictive. And let me just say, it is. It is extremely restrictive. This is one of the biggest complaints I've heard against Christianity. How can you be so narrow-minded and think you're the only way? How dare you? I read one guy, and this was from a supposedly Christian commentator. And short quote, here's what he said. Acts 4.12 is not accurate. 
That's heresy. Acts 4.12 is totally accurate. This is one of the most important verses in our scriptures. That man denied the scripture. Now that's a blatant statement. But people hear me. What we do is we like to water it down. We're not going to be so blatant as to say, oh, this isn't true. But how many times have you heard a statement like this? All roads, what? Well, lead to Rome, but I've heard people, you know, all roads lead to heaven. Have you heard that before? Heresy. All roads don't lead to heaven. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say most roads lead to hell. There's one road that leads to Jesus Christ. That's it. There's one. Or one road that leads to heaven, which is Jesus Christ. Many of you know the name Joel Osteen. He had a quote, and I think I've got it pretty close here. He said, Jesus is the only way to the Father, but there are many ways to Jesus. Wrong. Wrong. He was too scared in that interview to offend people and lose a following. People, here's why I'm saying this. You and I should not be living in a fearful existence so that we're scared to proclaim the truth of an exclusive Jesus Christ. He is totally exclusive. And shame on those who will say anything less. We live in an inclusive world. So preaching an exclusive Christ is not positive. We're going to be called narrow-minded. We're going to be called intolerant. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, John 10, 9, I am the door. I am. No one else. I am the door. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and shall find pasture. Jesus is the only door. John 14, 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes in the Father but by me. Does that sound exclusive? It's only through Jesus. Jesus claimed it very clearly. John, in 1 John 5, 12, said, He that has the Son has life. And he that has not the Son of God has not life. You've either got Him or you don't. And you've either got life or you've got hell. You've got one or the two. But Jesus is extremely exclusive. I read this quote. It's a quote within a quote. So I read this as I was studying for this one. It says, If Jesus' claims are true, if they're true, if this book is true, they're true for everyone. If these are false, the sooner we are proved wrong and put on the right road, the better. As C.S. Lewis put it, and here's the quote within the quote, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. If Christianity is false, it's not important at all. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Can I suggest to you that that's part of the problem we have in our culture? Christianity is moderately important. Christianity is not something that we allow to affect every area of our lives. 
For some, Christianity only, the lights only come on when we walk through the doors of a church. And as soon as we leave the doors of a church, it's all about us. Christianity is not moderately important. Christianity should affect every area of our lives. And if I'm not allowing it to affect every area of my life, people, I'm failing. I'm sinning against my God. Because Christianity is of utmost importance. Christianity really is exclusive. It is through Jesus alone. But look at the other side of this coin. If you look at verse 11, he's saying, you builders, you killed Him. You rejected the one that God set up. You are guilty. But there's salvation in no other name but Him. Last phrase of verse 12, whereby we must be saved. You pushed Him aside. You hated Him. But salvation is being offered through Him. We, we must be saved. That offer is still to these ones who crucified and killed our Lord. He's still offering this grace. All they need to do was to humble themselves, swallow their pride, repent, and they could have salvation. Even though they've killed Jesus, grace is being offered again. People, I'm glad for this. I don't know how many times God extended that offer of grace in my life before I said yes. We have a good God. And if you've never trusted Him, can I just, can I just encourage you with this? Grace is being offered again. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven. This is one of the greatest passages in our Bibles. The Gospel is laid out so clearly here. And it's easy, it's easy to see how Peter is applying this to these lost religious leaders. And I hope you agree with him. You should agree with him. Same thing applies to people today. We need to trust Christ alone. We can see this with unsaved people. But most in here would say, you know, I'm a follower of Christ. How does something like this apply to me who am already a follower? What difference should this make in our lives? Jesus is exclusive, okay? Get that in your mind for a minute. Jesus is totally exclusive. Jesus is that narrow way. And not many people find that narrow way. Many find the broad way. But not many find what it is to have this true relationship with Jesus Christ. And Christian, listen to me. If you are on that road, if you are on that narrow, I'll call it a narrow path, if you have been blessed enough to have that relationship, it should result in you being very grateful that you're not off of it. Jesus is extremely exclusive. And if you have a relationship with Him, you should be grateful that you're on that path. You should be living a life that is desiring to bring glory to the One who allowed you to be on that path. To do anything less is a slap in the face to the God that died for us. You and I, as followers of Christ, 
we should be following him we should be obeying his mandates and what is the what is the basic that he's given us to do go make disciples are you reaching out to see Number one, people coming to Christ. But number two, people growing in their relationship with Him. That's our job. is to make disciples. We do this because we're grateful that we have a relationship with Him. If I understand the position that God has allowed me to be in, following Him is going to be a natural response. It's nothing I have to work up in my life. It will be there. We just need to remember what He's done. Remember the Gospel that He's given to us. Let's stand for a moment. If you're here today and you've never become a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to understand He, Jesus, is your only hope. There is nothing else you can turn to. There is nothing else you can hope in. It's not a matter of, of tacking Him onto your life. It's not a matter of including Him in your religious experience. Jesus is it's an all or nothing proposition. That's why Jesus tells us, Luke 14, you better count the cost before you decide to become a follower of Me because it's going to cost you everything. Being a follower of Christ is extremely expensive. It costs you your life. You've got to come through Jesus. He is your only hope. Him alone. If you're not sure today that your sins have been forgiven, I'd love to be able to help you. I encourage you to come. During the invitation, come. Talk to me. See me in the back. Whatever it may be. But don't leave here not knowing that you are forgiven. Because if you're not, you're already under God's judgment at this point in time. And you need to have that fixed. Christian, are you living your life in such a way that shows, that demonstrates that you are grateful to the Lord for what He's done? Is your outward life demonstrating that you're grateful to Him? Talk's cheap. If you're not living a life that shows that, then I would suggest that you're probably not really grateful for what He's done. You're not getting it. Scripture says in everything... Give thanks. This should be a normal characteristic of every true Christian. You do business with God as He deals with you today.